0: Everything in my life has been unconventional, everything. So I always had a lot of gay friends. My, my first husband was gay and uh, I was 18, fresh off the boat from South Africa. I had landed up in Notting Hill Gate in a, in a squat. It was wonderful. I had no idea what gay meant. Anything was so green. But we were, we were in love and then he had told me he was gay, but I didn't really know what that meant. But uh, anyway, we landed up not being a couple, just being best friends we had a, a friend in common, an actor called Doug Lambert, who'd been in um, lots of big films, very close to him. And he told me in 1984 that he had AIDS and I wasn't to tell anybody. And would myself and a couple of other people be there for him and look after him. And I'll never forget that because he was terrified. He had just got a part which he was so over the moon He was terrified that he'd be found out while he was on set. So I used to get these calls from him, crying, shaking, saying that he was sure that the makeup artist could tell that his skin was so dry, but it was watching him, being with him. And then shortly before he died, I was diagnosed. So uh, I couldn't tell him, you know, I really couldn't, but I was looking in a mirror. I was seeing what, what my destiny was.
1: My name is Mark Thompson, and I'm a 52-year-old social justice activist, and this is We Were Always Here, a documentary series that explores the UK HIV epidemic through the voices of those who are most affected, but are often missing from the mainstream narratives. As a black gay man living with HIV since 1986, who has been involved at the forefront of activism, advocacy and prevention it was important to me that these stories were told. This isn't the definitive history of the UK HIV epidemic, but it's our history. Moments from our lives that defined the epidemic for us.
2: It was a monster, you know, for a lot of women, they had not disclosed their status to anybody. And to have to live like that is, it destroys
3: you. I was very, very fortunate with the health advisor that I had. She was amazing. I didn't know at that time that I was going to be the first person that she gave a diagnosis to
4: in prison. A lot of the women who, of course, a lot of them have sadly passed on and we, you know, we remember them and we honour them. But a lot of the women who attended the services are possibly women. are now, uh, what do you call it? I would call them queens in their own rights.
1: In 1986, the ratio of male to female HIV cases in the UK was 33 to one. By 1989, it was estimated that women accounted for a third of HIV cases worldwide with several thousand diagnosed in the UK. Thank you for doing this and I'm gonna launch straight in um just tell me just could you just introduce yourself say your name and a little bit about who you are
4: gosh so um my name is angelina namiba and i am a woman (laughs) not prepared because mr here wouldn't send me any questions so i have absolutely no clue what i'm going to be talking about (laughs) i'll
1: stop making those faces because (laughs) you know you
4: can Okay, I'm going to start again. My name is Angelina Namiba and I am a, well, I am originally from Kenya, but I've lived in the UK for more than half my life. So I'm kind of British, but I'm also, Kenya is still my home, if you ask me, and have worked within the HIV sector for a very long time.
1: In the early 90s and the late 80s, you know, HIV in this country is very much focused. The picture, the narrative is all around usually around gay men. We're starting to see an emergence of women and black African communities around this time. But just want to talk, just talk me through, what was it like going to a clinic in that time?
4: Maybe I should start with my diagnosis. I'd had hepatitis B. So when the, the GP said, oh, you've had this and um, I would you know, recommend that you go for an HIV test. And it was, it came out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't know much about HIV. Um, All I'd seen was my brother getting really ill. So when the GP told me to go for an HIV test, I think my whole face probably just fell down. And I went completely gray. In fact, I remember him even saying, you look quite gray. And I was just thinking, well, you just told me to go and have an HIV test. How do you think I feel? So I left the surgery and I went up to the local library to look up hepatitis B because I didn't want to have anything to do with HIV. And of course, I never went back to the surgery again. And so the GP would have known that I didn't go for the test. So he wrote to me and and wrote, you know, underlined. I strongly suggest you go for an HIV test. Those days, they would write you a little piece of paper, you know, the ones for bloods.
5: Mm
4: -hmm. You take it along to your local hospital. So he wrote me the paper. I went home and I put it under my bed and I never looked at it again. So clearly he didn't get the results, so he contacted me again. So this time I went to the hospital and I remember walking and I was on my own. I was scared. I gave the piece of paper to the nurse or the person who was doing the test. And I remember her looking at me and I could see her feeling, feeling for me, you know. So I did the test. I left the hospital and I never went back to find out what the result was. And I lived like that for nearly six months. And then, but then after six months, um, it's almost as if a seed was sown in my mind. It seemed as if everywhere I looked, there was some headline about HIV or some item about HIV on the TV. Somehow, you know, all of a sudden, Everything I was seeing was HIV and it was reminding me, you haven't gone for your result yet. So then I just after six months, I, I thought I couldn't live like that anymore. So I went to a local counseling center and um, you know, I got a few sessions of those days I called it pre-test counseling. Mm-hmm. I got some counseling and then I went for another test, but this time I went back to take the result because it was a counselor who gave it to me and we talked it through. And I was much more prepared then. I was diagnosed very soon after I had, luckily, after I had graduated from university. So I was just at that point where, by you know, I'm young, free, single, looking forward to a future, a bright future, and um, then I was diagnosed. So for me, I always say lucky because it really struck me hard. Because in those days, as you will know, Mark. when you're given a diagnosis, for many people, it was a thing of, you know, you probably have six months to live or maybe a few years if you're lucky.
1: So you would have been, I mean, how I mean, cause how old were you? I, mean?
4: I was in my my mid-twenties. And so I just thought, my goodness, it was really, really hard. I, I'm not even going to lie to you. But I think what made it harder for me was that my own brother had also been diagnosed uh, with HIV. And he had, um, he passed away a year, I think a year after I was diagnosed. And we were seeing a lot of people um, dying from you know AIDS-related illnesses, you know like PCP pneumonia, etc. That's what was around, and when I was diagnosed, and so you can imagine the havoc that it played on my mind as a young woman. And also what I felt was because it took me a while to actually get in touch with other people living with HIV, other women. At that point, I felt as if I was the only woman in London living with HIV.
0: been feeling I just had an instinct of feeling that I wasn't my glands were up I wasn't feeling I was feeling run down I wasn't feeling particularly well and I went to see my doctor it was a private doctor at the time and he wasn't there there was a locum who was very enthusiastic and said he thought I had glandular fever and he took all of these blood tests and uh and then when I went back to see him he said that I didn't have glandular fever but that he had put in Uh, for HTLV3, they called it then, test. And I was really angry because I hadn't asked for it. I hadn't, he'd just done it without my permission. And I just remember having this cold shiver going through me. And what I said was, I don't want to know what the results are. Really don't want to know. And I'm really angry that you took the test without asking me. And I seem to have a brilliant capacity for real denial. Um, I didn't take it in. I really didn't.
1: Caroline Guinness McGann was one of the founders of Positively Women.
0: I'll tell you something really strange as well. I flirted very briefly with Buddhism, the Shirin Shoshu Buddhism, the Nami or thing, mm-hmm. very briefly. And <laughs> about two weeks later, Sandy Shaw and Lynn Franks mm-hmm. had come around to my house to show me how to chant. <laughs> they were upstairs. Right? The doorbell goes, and Tim, my first husband, who I continued sharing homes with right almost till he died, came and knocked on the door and he said, "Uh, your doctor's downstairs. Went downstairs and he said, look, uh, I know you said you didn't want to know the results of that test, but I think you're too intelligent not to know. It's positive. Tim went into shock. Tim really went into shock because he was was a sexually active gay man and he couldn't believe that I'd got it and um, not him. I mean, he told me this later on, but it's something which, which really shocked him. And then it was, have I given it to my daughter who was three years old at the time? And there was so little information then. And then I had to say, thank you very much and go back upstairs and act like everything was fine. <laughs> so, then I got a call shortly after that, uh, that same day. From my business partner my, my great friend who was at the bank i was running a video company with her and we were meant to be having this meeting at the bank <laughs> and she i didn't turn up for the meeting and she called me and she was furious and she just as an aside but it'll make sense now she had lost the great love of her life he died so she said where were you I was at the meeting you completely let me down where the hell were you and I said, well, you know that test I told you about? She said, yes. I said, well, I've just been told it's positive. And she screamed on the phone. She said, I can't lose another person I love. And so I kept quiet. You know, from that moment on, I couldn't tell anyone. I mean, she was lovely, of course, by the time she got back to the house, you know, she she was said, I'm here for you, all the rest of it. But I was so worried about Doug at the time. Um, he was on his way out that I concentrated more on him, really. It was only years later I was able to look back at it in hindsight and and see what shock I'd gone into. It carried on as normal. Doug died just shortly before Christmas in 86. And I think they'd just started doing a bit of buddying. The Terence Higgins Trust was a fledgling thing then. And somebody who I'd known years ago from the hippie days in Notting Hill called me and said that she had wanted to be a buddy for the Terence Higgins Trust. And she got my number from Doug. And would I be interested in organising a large music? fundraiser mm. that was the turning point and she said it was I should meet a guy called Tony Whitehead and his boyfriend George anyway they said would I do it and I said yes how much time do I have he said a concert on the 1st of April somewhere like Wembley Stadium so it was what well, this is December yeah. right okay <laughs> I can do this so one girlfriend who I'd worked with I was positive and would she come and help me she said yes put a call out for some volunteers and they started coming in it was hard getting acts because of the subject matter it was called International AIDS Day IAD the party but what really helped was and I was just so in awe of him because he was being so brave was George Michael Uh, he wasn't out then but he came in, he and he said, right. So he became like the Bob Geldof, you know. Actually, Bob Geldof tried to hijack it, but we told him to piss off. It was like it was the year it was the year after Live Aid, so like <laughs> so go away. Um, <laughs> but uh, in the end, what I managed to get was worldwide TV rights. As soon as I had that, all the bands who had said they were too busy or they were in the studio suddenly were available so many bands that uh, we landed up doing all the London venues and it went right up through the country right up to Edinburgh where the Waterboys performed but Wembley itself was, was something else it was so empowering so after that I didn't want to go back into music and film I knew quite a few gay men with the virus but I hadn't met any woman
4: at all Although it was really, really tough and it was really hard for me to deal with, I was really lucky in that, again, I keep saying lucky because I have a feeling a lot of things happened to me earlier on in my diagnosis that have really helped me and helped to shape me and helped me to cope throughout. So one of the first things that happened was um, I used to have a really good friend, um, you know, <clears throat> who had met here in the early years. And um, one time, just out of the blue, you know, we used to go out partying and we were, we were really good friends. One time out of the blue, she just came to me and said, Angelina, I have something to tell you. And I said, oh, what is it? And she said, oh, um, um, I have HIV. And I just thought, oh, thank God. Obviously not because I was happy she was HIV positive, but just because here was another woman in London who happens to be my friend who is also living with HIV. And so, of course, I hadn't really told many people at that point. So, of course, I straight away told her about me. And then what she did was she then uh, took me along to a support group where there was about five other women living with HIV. And that, for me, was an eye-opener uh, because I met women who were mothers, who were working, women who are just leading you know, daily regular lives. So I'll never really forget the, the, that power of peer support so early on because it really shaped me. The... First support group I attended with the five or so women. It was um, body positive in our Court. There were very, very few women attending, you know, the groups at that time. A lot of, it was predominantly attended by um, white gay men. Really not
2: welcoming to any women. And then for that support session on a Tuesday night, we started services at five and we finished at nine. So four hours, that's all we had in the week. And within that evening, we would provide complimentary therapies, information around treatments that were on offer. Uh, We had somebody to come and help them around accessing benefits. Again, if English is not your first language, those forms were a monster to fill out. You know, they were like some sort of uh, war and peace application form for, what, £100? And the numbers of young women uh, coming in were growing it became a battle to provide those services for women. The four hours that we had on a Tuesday night was not suffice.
1: Paula Harran is a community fundraiser coordinator for Opening Doors London.
2: And for us, it was like, you know, we had, we had a really vulnerable group of people who do not have the luxury of speaking up, you know. And again, did anybody care? No. They were very much hidden amongst you know, amongst our society. And, you know, people would say to me, yes, but aren't they all people from outside the UK? No, people were, you know, women were getting diagnosed, UK black, um, white UK women, average age was 22.
1: That's one of the points I just want to unpick with you as well, right? We're recording this in 2021, when you and I are in our 50s, you know, and a lot of the women that you worked with and a lot of the men that I encountered are of a similar age. These were really, really young women. This is the bit that when we sit here, we don't remember. These are women in their twenties starting life. You're a young woman yourself. You're seeing these young women. What is that like? It was
2: overwhelming. I would go, an hour before I promised to go and see someone. So I'd be literally walking outside, pacing myself, getting myself in control and then going in. And there was one young woman, she had experienced coming from quite a traumatic background. She'd been through genocide at, at a point in her life. She had two small children. She was very young. I think she must have been like 25, 26 possibly. She was in hospital and she was losing her eyesight through hiv complications really scared like really scared and i had to go in and they were trying to uh, feed her th- with a tube down her throat and i sat there and i put you know put cream on her hands and cut her fingernails and kept thinking you know in some ways i'm really glad that she can't see me because i was so upset what made it worse is that they weren't being seen
3: I was a nurse, loved my career, absolutely loved it, and that was brought to an end very abruptly through a back injury, lifting a patient or transferring a patient, and uh, I prolapsed my lower back. Very long story short, I, I became addicted to the pain medication that I'd been prescribed and my addiction then escalated and I then started using, you know, class A drugs. Within two years, uh, my whole life had changed and I uh, was committing crime every day to fund my addiction.
1: Sophie Strachan is an activist and sexual health advisor. She is also the director of the Sophia Forum, which exists to empower all women living with HIV
3: ended up in prison and I think what's important to know is I have no recollection of the first three months of my time in prison which speaks to the trauma of going into prison but prison saved my life and and um what happened at some point was it's suggested or advised that you go down to the sexual health service and you know it's a it's a prime opportunity for people who are living chaotic lifestyles to go down and have a sexual health screen in the same way you go to the dentist and you go to the optician or whatever so i did and and really didn't think that much of it because because i tested the year before thought i was fine and uh I was very, very fortunate with the health advisor that I had. Um, She was amazing. I didn't know at that time that I was going to be the first person that she gave a diagnosis to in prison. And it was only years down the line that I actually learned of the very first words that I said to her when she gave me the diagnosis rather than what I remember. That was just after so apparently what I said to her in her face shouting in her face was like you are fucking joking four times apparently you're fucking joking um I remember the Jesus wept bit and just broke down and cried and then within 10 minutes I was back up in my cell
1: What support did you get when you were in prison around that?
3: So she would take me off the wing because I was in a really bad way anyway and then land that on my lap. You know, that was just an added bit. So she would bring me off the wing and take me down to healthcare um, to get me off out of my cell and off the wings. Um, And I'd be given a cup of tea and a cigarette and a cake, you know, and it was just and I spoke about everything other than the hiv i don't want to talk about the hiv it was hard and the health advisor knew this you know it's just not a place where you talk about anything like this
1: yeah yeah
3: and i didn't take any i was scared to take any information up to my cell because you got cell spins Mm. and within two weeks of me taking information up to my cell which took about six months my cell got spun and part of one of like because of the stress of being in prison, my hair was falling out badly. I lost about three quarters of my hair. So we had these tea bags, tea bag packs that you'd get every evening. I'd give them out. the were tea bags and biscuits and milk. And I had bags and bags and bags of hair in those tea bag bags in my drawer because the medical team was saying, hold on to it. And so when my cell got spun, they discovered the A4 envelopes would have information about hiv tipped out onto the bed and then they opened up the drawer (laughs) that gets me every time and they tipped out all the hair onto the bed and it's like i felt naked i felt completely stripped of everything and i was terrified And I was taken into the office and asked, like, what was going on? You know, why did I have these bags of hair? And and I was too terrified to tell them. They weren't horrible. (laughs) You know, they weren't horrible. But, like, I just felt naked. And then I had support from a charity, Positively Women. Right. I had a woman come in who was amazing. She came in every fortnight i think yeah she she was another woman living with hiv she we had a similar background substance misuse she'd been diagnosed in prison she was ahead years ahead family you know daughter and it just gave me hope it was the first time i felt any hope since entering those gates
1: In the next episode of We Were Always Here,
0: the women started coming in, Mm -hmm. and we were from such different backgrounds. It was extraordinary. But one thing we realised that what we all had in common was the virus, the fact that we were women, that our problems were the same.
3: And also there was a part of me that still didn't want to accept that this was my reality. So there was that kind of, yeah, but. Yeah. I come out with more isms, do you know what I mean? It was like, not only now was I, you know, an ex-offender, an an ex-drug user, I'm now HIV positive. So it's like that multiple stigma. I needed something beyond HIV for a connection.
1: We Were Always Here was presented by me, Mark Thompson. It was produced by Hannah Walker Brown. The production assistant was Rory Boyle. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Lee Neal. This is a Broccoli production.